All right, grab your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 17, as we will consider a tremendously significant yet commonly kind of overlooked section of Matthew's gospel. And as indicated in the prayer, that is the transfiguration of the Lord Jesus. And just so we're all on the same page, we don't use that word transfigured very often. It comes from the Greek word that we would just say is metamorphosis. And so this is a transformation. That's what transfiguration is. It's going from, uh, from one state to an elevated and more glorious state. So that's what transfiguration is. So as I use that word, uh, we can be on the same page together. So let's go ahead and read Matthew chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. It says this, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I'll make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but only Jesus. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands." Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Now before exploring the text that we just read, I'll I'll take an opportunity briefly, I think briefly, to address two verses that I left off of the table somewhat glaringly last week, at least uh, glaringly if you're Mike. And now I don't see Mike here. Come on, Mike. (laughs) The last two verses of Matthew chapter 16 say this, The Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of the Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Now this verse, as you can imagine, has caused commentators and Bible teachers quite a headache because it sounds like Jesus just said that the second coming was going to occur before the death of the apostles. You guys pick that up in the language like that? That's what it sounds like it said, right? That's how that reads. Now, a a quick caveat before I go forward in explicating that. What I'm about to present to you is not any kind of official Christ church position on eschatology or the study of end times. We're happy to have a diversity of views on those matters, both in the pews and in the leadership of our church. So I'm telling you how I read this text and why. I'm not saying thus says the Lord, okay, just so that we're, we're clear on that. Now, the reason that I saved these two verses for this week instead of touching on them last week is because the popular approach to Matthew chapter 16, verses 27 and 28 that I just read is to apply them to the transfiguration passage of Matthew chapter 17. 
That's the standard treatment of those verses that say, I, I tell you that some standing here will not taste death until they see the, come, the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And generally speaking, that language of imminence, some standing here won't taste death until, is taken to mean that the transfiguration was going to happen and some of them would see it. That's the, the general way of untangling that. Because clearly the language is meant to say that the event to which Jesus refers takes place within the lifetime of the apostles, right? Some of you will not taste death until, meaning this thing that I'm describing is going to happen before you guys have all died. So to honor the eminence of that language, most study Bibles, apologists, and commentators say that Jesus said that some standing there would not taste death until they saw the Son of Man come in the glory of the Father. And then the very next event in Matthew's Gospel has some of those very men witnessing Jesus in the glory of the Father as he's transfigured in front of them on the mountain. Check. Done. Right? So that's the common way of interpreting those otherwise seemingly challenging verses is just to say, well, look, the transfiguration is the next thing that happens, and here's Jesus shining like the sun in glory, and those guys hadn't died before it happened. So what's the big deal? It's the, trigger, it's the, the transfiguration. And while I appreciate the acknowledgement of imminence there, I've got two primary problems with that reading of the passage. One is that Jesus also said that this coming in glory would include judgment. Quote, repaying each person according to what he has done. And we don't have any judgment in the transfiguration scene, do we? That element is, is absent from the transfiguration. The second problem is that it's odd that Jesus would feel the need to say, some of you standing here will not taste death until you see it, if the event to which he's referring is a week away. You remember how Matthew 17 started? Six days later. It, it seemed odd to, to have to emphasize, hey, some of you are even going to be alive when this happens if the event to which he's referring is a week away. Because it's actually not particularly surprising to survive to the next week, is it? Right? And, and so while that is the common scholarly position on this text, it seems to me to fail rather badly. Using the transfiguration as the fulfillment of the coming to which Jesus refers in Matthew chapter 16 is sort of like trying to fit the water from your swimming pool into your bathtub. There's just too much there to try to fit it all in. Now the alternative position to which I hold sees Jesus as referring to the judgment against the Jews in AD 70 when Jerusalem falls, their temple is destroyed, and millions of them are murdered. I believe that's the event to which Jesus is referring I believe that's the coming, if you will, to which Jesus is referring in Matthew 16, 27 and 28. This event happens within the apostles' lifetime, so it meets that criterion. But some of them have already died by that point, and those remaining are very, very old. So did it make sense to say, some of you will actually still be alive, albeit very old, feeble, and close to death? So here's how I and many others from whom I have learned read the text in question. When Jesus says that he will come in the glory of the Father, he's saying that he's going to come like the Father had come in the past. I'm going to come in the glory of the Father, meaning I'm going to come in the kind of glorious ways that the Father had come in the past. Now, when we look at how the Father had come in the past, what we see is a host of, if you will, judgment comings that were mediated through the military might of an existing nation. Many times in the Old Testament, the Father is said to have come in glory through the military actions of a nation's army. 
For example, Isaiah chapter 19 describes the destruction of Egypt at the hands of the Assyrians by saying this, The Lord rode on a swift cloud and came down to Egypt. Now, we would never describe it that way because that's not what anybody saw with their eyeballs, right? What did they see with their eyeballs? Well, what they saw was a bunch of Assyrian warriors. But how does Isaiah describe that event? He says, yeah, I realize what you're looking at is Assyrian warriors with swords and shields in hand overwhelming the Egyptians. But I'm going to tell you what was happening. What was happening is Yahweh was riding on the clouds swiftly. That's what was happening. That's how he describes those events because they weren't empiricists in the way that we are. They didn't communicate things the same way that we communicate things. But since this isn't the preaching text, I won't stack up all of the other examples that could be laid before you of just that same kind of language communicating those same kinds of events. But over and over again in the Old Testament, the Father is said to have come down in glory when He's using one nation to judge another nation. So when we hear Jesus saying that he's going to come in the glory of the Father to repay people for what they've done, he's saying that as the Father once judged the nations, now the Son, now the Son will judge the nations in like manner. In fact, that's precisely what the Lord Jesus himself says in John chapter 5, verses 19 through 23. It says this, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise, or more literally, in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. And greater works than these will He show Him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives, and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. Listen to this. For the Father judges no one. What? The Father judges no one? What about all the Old Testament times when the Father is doing all of the judging? He's saying now, at this point, as there's a transfer of authority, the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to who do you think? The Son. All judgment is given to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. So Jesus says, out of his own mouth, and quite explicitly in the context of judgment, he says... The Father is handing that particular privilege, prerogative, and responsibility over to me. I judge the nations now. And so Jesus says that while the Father previously exercised that right up to that point in raising up and bringing down nations, all that authority for judgment is now being vested in the Son as, what do we call Him? The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one to whom all authority in heaven and earth is given. And we can see this transfer of judgment authority even embedded in the language of Matthew chapter, chapter 16 itself because that phrase that Jesus used, repay each man according to his deeds, is actually a quotation from Psalm chapter 62 verse 12 and it's originally applied to the Father's activity. But to whom does Jesus apply it when he's speaking? He says, I'll be the one who repays each man according to his deeds. So Jesus is here talking about a transfer in judgment authority that's going from the Father to the Son. And so again, this is the prerogative and right of executing judgment on the nations, which was transferred from Father to Son. And Jesus says that He's going to do it like the Father did, in the glory of the Father, which again, I take to mean doing it like the Father did, using the same sorts of military upheaval that we saw over and over and over again when that language is used in the Old Testament. So, 
In Matthew 16, Jesus is telling the disciples that after he's glorified in resurrection, some of them will be witness, some of them will still be alive to witness his first act of judgment. His first act as judge of the nation, some of them will even be alive to witness it. And that first act of judgment is going to be aimed at the nation of Israel herself. And as we continue in our study of Matthew, you'll see that that becomes a huge theme to which the Lord Jesus is building up, namely the destruction of the Jews in AD 70. And Jesus says, you guys will be a witness to my first act as king and judge when I come in the glory of the Father. Now notice I said first, not final. But they're going to get to see it. When he first exercises that authority, some of them will still be alive. Now, uh, you're free again to disagree with me on that, and uh, we can have arguments about it, and you can be wrong and all that sort of stuff. I'm just kidding. But to the text at hand. This mountaintop transfiguration scene that we read about in Matthew chapter 17 is one of those events that can easily cause modern readers or newer Bible readers to just kind of scratch our heads and move on. <laughs> right? Okay, so here's Jesus shining really brightly. Here's an appearance of two Old Testament guys that I've, I've heard about. And uh, here's three of the inner circle disciples who are staring at it all happening. And Peter would like to stay there. Uh, okay. <laughs> That's cool, I suppose. And then we move on to something that is more clearly Jesus telling us to do something or Paul giving us some practical instructions. But we don't often dwell in those sorts of scenes, do we? We often kind of move beyond those because we're not entirely sure what it means or what we're supposed to do about it. This is one of those sorts of scenes. Now, when we read it, at least one thing is obvious. It's obvious that we're meant to take away something spectacular about the Lord Jesus because he's on a mountain with great men of God who are looking to him as he shines like the sun and the voice of the Father comes from a cloud approving him. So we know one thing for sure. I'm supposed to magnify and glorify Jesus because there's something unique about him. And that is a wonderful starting point, to be sure. But we can press a bit further to see precisely what's being communicated here by looking at the overlap between this scene in Matthew chapter 17 and other scenes from the Old Testament that show us that Matthew is intending to communicate things by the details that he includes for us in Matthew chapter 17. So once we've identified the theology of the text and the typology of the text, we'll then consider its devotional application for our lives. But we, we need to always do those things in proper order. We stress this all the time, don't we? We, we want to do those things in the right order. We're not starting with, where am I in the passage? No, we're starting with, where's the glory of the Lord Jesus? Because until I've seen him, I've got no business thinking about me. Right? Uh, until I've seen and beheld his glory, there's no way that I'm going to become any more glorious. Right? Because I'm only supposed to reflect that glory which I have seen in Him. So we look first to the glory of Him. We want that theology, we want that typology, and then we'll consider what in the world am I supposed to do then. So that's the way we'll take it this morning. Now in thinking through this account, there are many significant elements that we should note. In verse 1 it said this, After six days Jesus took with Him Peter and James and John his brother and led them up a high mountain by themselves. So what Jesus is communicating there, or rather what Matthew is communicating there, is effectively on the seventh day from the last event that was documented, Jesus takes up three men with him onto a mountain. 
The reason that's noteworthy is because in Exodus chapter 24, Moses is on a mountain with three men, two of whom are brothers, just like James and John are brothers, on a mountain with two brothers, three men total, two brothers. And on the seventh day, the Lord speaks to Moses from the glory cloud. I think maybe there's a reason why Matthew then phrased those things the way that he did. Why even he makes sure to draw attention to the fact that James and John are brothers. Because they'd have known. Wait, hold on. We've seen, we've seen a significant biblical figure go up a mountain with three men, two of whom are brothers, and on the seventh day, something crazy happened. That seems familiar to me. I memorized it when I was a child. That's Exodus chapter 24. He wants these things to come flooding into their mind. Verse 2 says that Jesus' face shone like the sun. Well, Moses' face was shining after his encounter with the Lord on the mountain as well, wasn't it? That's happened before. Verse 5 of our text in Matthew says that Yahweh was speaking from a cloud on top of the mountain. Now, the overshadowing cloud is itself intended to take the reader back to Old Testament history. As the cloud overshadowed Moses on Sinai, it enveloped the tabernacle when the tabernacle was filled with the glory of God, and it followed the Israelites through their wilderness wandering. That is to say that the glory cloud is associated with a particular point in time, a particular time period in Israel's history, and that is the time of the Exodus. You see, these themes, this overlap here with Moses from Exodus chapter 24 and the Lord Jesus is intended to show us that Jesus is a new Moses leading a new Exodus out of a new Egypt. And that Egypt is, as we've seen, two things. Old covenant Israel herself with her deficits and her abuses in terms of her administrators, as well as sin and death. But these themes are not only mosaic and exodus-oriented, because there's another figure there, isn't there? Elijah's there, too. Elijah's there, too, on that mountain. And Elijah also had a significant mountaintop experience with Yahweh on the same mountain, that being Mount Sinai. So here are these two figures, both of whom, Moses and Elijah, both of whom have had significant encounters with the Lord that are documented on the Old, in the Old Testament on Mount Sinai. The Lord came to Elijah on the mountain while Elijah was, if you remember, uh, 1 Kings 19. He's depressed about the infidelity of God's people, Israel, who've gone after other gods and they've killed their own prophets. He was also fearful of death at the hands of the wicked queen Jezebel. And so what does Yahweh do? Yahweh comes to him and he encourages and enlivens Elijah. And he reminds him that the Lord always maintains a remnant. And then God commissions Elijah to call Elisha, who will receive a double portion of the Spirit and accomplish far more in Israel than Elijah was able to see. You see, those narrative overlaps or parallels are intended to clue us in on the meaning of this event. The transfiguration tells us that Israel is in need of another exodus. They need another Elijah, uh, Elisha to follow Elijah. They need a leader to whom the Lord speaks and favors because they're in captivity again. And the people are again in sin. In fact, they're getting ready to kill the greatest of their prophets. They're going to need some help. Jesus is that leader. He is that Elisha with a double portion he will lead that exodus, and this is why Moses and Elijah are on that mountain, outshining, or being outshined, rather, by the Lord Jesus. 
And you'll remember in the reading of the text that those two figures, seminal and important though they are, end up fading away from the scene incredibly abruptly. And when the disciples look up again after hearing the voice of the Father from heaven, it's Jesus alone whom they see. Why? Because Israel has no need of anyone else save the Lord Jesus. Everybody else is fading to the background because all of them were paving the way. All of them were types. All of them were shadows of He who was to come. And you can even see the idea of the types and shadows, language that's used explicitly in Hebrew, because what is the Lord Jesus doing except shining brilliantly? And what happens when something shines brilliantly? Well, those are the conditions necessary for there to even be shadows. So you can see them fade away in the light of the glory of the Lord Jesus, who in fact replaces them, because He is all that they and we need. The glory and majesty of Jesus is on display here in a way that foreshadows even the resurrection glory that Peter, if you recall last week, that Peter missed last week. He was zeroed in on the death and totally missed the glory of the resurrection. So here, in wonderful kindness and mercy, the Lord Jesus helps him to process the resurrection and the glory that follows death by giving him a little preview of it. I think that's a a kindness that the Lord gave to Peter. Now, something else that we should see in this passage, particularly as fathers, is how the Heavenly Father cares for His Son. How the Heavenly Father cares for His Son. In chapter 16, Jesus speaks explicitly of His death for the first time, really. There had been some subtle allusions to it, and there had been some some sort of like narrative cues toward it. But for the first time, He announces plainly and unequivocally to the disciples I'm going to die. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise. He's just gotten to the point where he's speaking about this explicitly because that atrocity of his death is drawing near. You see, from this point on in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus is careening toward the cross. And so what does his father do? What does his father do? As he's in this this crisis point, as he's staring down suffering and death, what does his father do except draw near to him to encourage and enliven the heart and soul of his son? Because that's what good fathers do for their children. When his son walks in faithfulness, the father is present, attentive, and pay attention to this one, he's verbal. He's articulate. He says something. See, often as as men, those who aren't pastors and don't string together sentences for a a living, we often aren't that verbal. Isn't that true? So our wives have all the words. (laughs) We get home at the end of the day, I'm done. I'm done talking. Had to tell those guys to hammer here and to cut there and whatever. I'm done talking. But here's the father making sure that he's not just present, he's not just attentive, he's articulate toward his son. There are things that sons need to hear from their fathers. He says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. So a question just for reflection for us as fathers, do our children hear that from us? Do our children routinely and regularly hear that from us? Sometimes as fathers, we are present and we are attentive and we are articulate in our corrections. 
in our critiques, uh, in our amendments of this behavior or that behavior. But are we as verbal in our affirmations of our children and our love for them as we are in our critiques and in our, uh, maybe do this different or maybe fix this or maybe clean that up? They need to hear it even as Christ himself needed to hear it from his own father. And you'll note that this isn't the first time that the father has said this to his son, is it? It's the second time, and he says it exactly the same way the second time as he did the first time. And the reason I'm saying that, dads, is you don't have to be super creative. You just have to say it. <laughs> right? It's not like you have to reinvent the wheel every time. You repeat yourself. First, at Jesus' baptism, the father is there, and he is verbal as his son is beginning his public ministry, and he makes sure to affirm his son in that faithfulness. And here, as that ministry is moving toward a climax in the suffering and death of the Lord Jesus, the father is again near, and he is again verbal. So may we learn from our heavenly father how we ought to father. Now, as glorious as all of the things considered up to this point have been, we come now to the best part. You see, here on this mountain, Jesus is displaying Yahweh's glory. That part's obvious, right? His face is shining like the sun. His clothes are, are shining bright white. It's clear that there is a divine glory that's being displayed. That much is, is obvious. But what we can miss is the fact that Jesus is experiencing this transfiguration as, quote, the Son of Man. As the son of man. And Matthew is very, he's very specific to make sure that he's emphasized that particular title for the Lord Jesus during this section. It's the third time that the title has been used from Matthew 16 to verse 13 of chapter 17. He wants us to be thinking of the Lord Jesus as the son of man. So he experiences this divine transfiguration is emanating with the glory of Yahweh, but he's doing so as the Son of Man. Why have us thinking of the Son of Man instead of thinking of Jesus in this particular instance as the Son of God? Well, it's because he wants us to be thinking, this is the Son of, what's the word for man? A Adam. Adam. He wants us to be thinking about the Lord Jesus as another Adam. Even as you're familiar with Romans chapter 5, that Jesus is the last Adam. This is to say that Jesus is humanity's new representative leader and head, and it is as such that he is experiencing this transfiguration. That means, to boil that all down, that this isn't just a glimpse into Jesus' resurrection glory, it's a glimpse into our resurrection glory. Because what he experiences, he experiences as the son of whom? Man. What are you and I? Man. That's why he emphasizes that title. Son of man, son of man, son of man. Oh, here's the transfiguration. It's Jesus experiencing this as the son of man. It would have been a totally different feel and flavor if the title he'd been using up to that point had been son of God, son of God, son of God. Because if it's son of God, then all of us are thinking, okay, well, this is the inherent glory of the Lord Jesus in his divinity shining through and, and so all we should see from this is how wonderful and glorious Jesus is. But if the title leading up to it, if the refrain is Son of Man, Son of Man, Son of Man, then that means that you and I aren't left on the bench as spectators of this event. It means that we're looking forward to something in which we will be included. 
And that the glimpse of glory that we see in this transfigural moment is a glory that you and I are growing up into. This isn't just the pre-incarnate glory of Jesus that he's looking forward to taking back and then keeping for himself. This is the glory of the Son of Man that will be shared with all of the men whom he makes new. That's what's happening in this scene. A look at the glory of Jesus in this scene is a look at the glory that you and I will share with him. You see, Jesus is generous in what he does, even what he becomes. He does and he becomes for his people so that he might pave a way for us to follow him in those things. Jesus here becomes, as a man, a vessel containing the very glory of God, which is a preview of what the new humanity in Christ will be and is becoming. And and the reason that we know this, some of you may be thinking, well, get exegetical for me. That's a nice idea, but but could you anchor that in, in the text itself? The reason we can know this with confidence, that is, know that we're not just looking to a future event, but one that is even a present reality for you and for me to grow up into, is because Jesus said in verse 12 of Matthew 17 that the Elijah who would come and, quote, restore all things has indeed already come. And who does he identify him as? John the Baptist. Well, if the Elijah who was to come and restore all things has already come, what does that mean except that the restoration is already active in some way, shape, or form and is a reality that is yet growing, even as the Lord Jesus has made sure to tell us these things grow like mustard seeds. These things happen as processes over time. And so we can know if Elijah has already come, who was supposed to bring restoration with him, Jesus says, yeah, he came. That means that restoration has come. It's simply working itself out. But do not think that these are not active and present realities in the lives of those whom Christ has made new. They are. As we said in the email last week, these things are both ultimate and they are intermediate. They're already growing into something more grand as we speak. As Daniel chapter 12 and Philippians chapter 2 both tell us, we will shine like stars. We, like you and me, dim though we may be today, we will shine like stars. Jesus first, but he shines for us so that we might shine too. This isn't just show and tell, it's taste and see. Now in closing... I want to say that this text invites us into what we might call, if we're just using the classic language for this, the transfiguration, then this text invites us into what we might call transfigural living. That is to say that we ought to live now like we are who we will be. We should live now like we are who we will be. Let's talk to our children now like we are who we will be. You see what I'm saying? Let's shepherd our families and wash them with the word now, like we are who we will be. Let's engage with our neighbors and our coworkers now, like we are who we will be. And what we'll find is all sorts of little mini transfigurations will start breaking out all over our town because the glory of the future keeps making appearances in the present. That's the idea. As we shine like the stars, walking obediently with the Lord Jesus. And we have our own spirit-wrought transfigurations before the eyes of men that they may see our good works and what? 
praise the Father in heaven because we are shining even as the Lord Jesus showed us we can and even as we will all the more brightly one day. Let's pray.